I was talking to some friends of mine uh, a few years ago that worked with an organization called the International Justice Mission. International Justice Mission is an international justice mission. So they're kind of all over the world, and they do different things depending on where they were. And these friends of mine, they worked in this country where essentially society had broken down. There had been a revolution, and in the aftermath of that, it was just fragmentary chaos. So there were warlords, like raising their own personal armies and going against each other. And part of what that meant was a complete breakdown of any kind of justice. And so what had happened in the aftermath is um, slavery, particularly enslaving of children, had become a huge issue. What would happen is kids would be kidnapped at a very, very young, young age and made to be workers in one way or another. If they were boys and girls, they were siphoned off into different areas. But all they had ever known was slavery from their earliest thoughts. And what the International Justice Mission would do is they would um, work through whatever means necessary to find and free these children and bring them into homes, orphanages that they had set up, places where they were cared for and safe and where they had what they needed. And in these homes, they would receive food and medical care and education. And they were freed from the slavery that they had known their whole lives. Our friends were talking about how it was a common thing for these children for it to not look like a movie. You know, the movie idea or the romantic idea we might have in our mind is somebody kicks the door in and they rescue the kids and they bring them in and the kids are like, yay, we're free. And then everything, you know, everybody lives happily ever after. But they said the reality was that their freedom only started from the, in the moment that they were physically set free, that it was a common thing for these kids to have so much trouble transitioning in their own minds to thinking of themselves as children and not slaves. When they'd make a mistake, they'd cower in fear and run away because they're expecting, because they have so much muscle memory built up there, they're expecting to be hit. They would hoard food even though there was plenty. They would hoard food and hide it in their stuff because they had lived lives where they weren't sure if and when their next meal was going to show up. They'd fight amongst each other, used to a way of life where power through violence and abuse was the only rule. An international justice mission discovered over time that a crucial part of these children not just being freed but becoming to the point where they internalized that freedom, where they weren't just freed from the bondage of being, uh, having to work in slavery, but where the shackles in their own hearts broke off. A crucial part was uh, the process of repeating to them over and over the story of their rescue, to tell them what they had been freed from, to tell them the story of the day when it happened. And over time, that telling over and over again, it sank into their bones and they began to internalize, I am no longer a slave, but I'm a loved and cared for and safe child. As they heard that story again and again and they began to inhabit that story, it transformed them. It changed them. The reality 
of their no longer being slaves became internalized and owned. When I heard this, it struck me as a profound statement of what it means to live in this broken world as God's freed children. One of the profound truths of the gospel is that we've been redeemed by Jesus from slavery to sin and selfishness. That we've, we talked about last week, we've been adopted into the family of God as delighted in daughters and sons. And all of this happened apart from us contributing anything to it. Jesus won our victory for us. We bring nothing to the table except for perhaps the sin that made it necessary. But Jesus frees us. And brings us salvation apart from us contributing anything to it. And that is an objective truth. Jesus does that. We were not at uh, at his crucifixion. We were not there when he uh, broke out from the empty tomb. All of that happened apart from us. God did it. And that's an objective truth that is true no matter how we think about it or how we feel about it. And our response to this truth is faith where we... Uh, believe and trust God that we are who He says we are. That He has accomplished what He says He has accomplished. And that, that moment of us leaning in and trusting and believing this story when it is told to us, this is when that objective reality becomes a subjective one. When it becomes an experienced reality. When in a sense it becomes internalized. It's when God applies the benefits of what he's accomplished to us in real time. But we have so much muscle memory of what it is to be bound under the power of sin. Not only memory. We know the pull of sin and selfishness and temptation even now. And we live in a world that is in so many ways bound into the power of sin and selfishness. And so sometimes it is so hard to believe that I am a dearly delighted in son of God. It's much easier to believe that I am somehow still in bondage. It is so easy for me to cower when I mess up and to wait for the hammer blow. It is so easy for me to think I need to hoard stuff. That there won't be enough. And it's all up to me to take care of myself. We have so much muscle memory there. So, what does God do for us? Not just free us the one time. He repeats to us. He reiterates to us the story of our freedom over and over again. Because He is intent that we will know the fullness of everything He has for us. So he repeats it to us. He doesn't begrudge us that we need it repeated to us. We're going to talk about that more this morning. Last week, if you were here, we touched on how crucial it is to know the answer to a couple of questions. When we are and where we are. We talked about when we are. We are part of God's people after the the fulfillment of God's purposes in Jesus. And where are we? We are in Christ. United to him and all that is his by right becomes ours by grace. And this week, I want to expand on that a little bit more to answer another question that is intimately tied up with those. Who are you? Who are we? With that said, this morning we read uh, Galatians three twenty six through 4, 7. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male 
and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is, is that as long as an heir is under age, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental uh, spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit that calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave. You're God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that in it you show us who you are and what you're about. And so you show us who we are in you. I pray in these moments as we attend to the riches of this passage that you would move by your Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts. That we might see and know and experience all that is ours in Christ. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to break this uh, sermon up into a couple different passages, and we're answering that question, who are you? You are a child of God. You are a child of God. Now, what does that mean? There's a sense that we can say that all human beings are God's children. Scripture speaks of it that way sometimes. God's created us, and He's our source of life, like a father, and part of what that means is uh, that's part of what it means when, it, when Scripture says we're the image of God. We're made to be like Him. And like in a healthy family, a child watches and copies their father. They image their father. But there's a basic break in humanity's relationship with God. He's all of our father, yes, but it's an estranged relationship. We only reflect Him in, bro- in, in, in partial and in broken ways. And things would remain that way. We would remain in this estranged relationship except for God's intentions to free us. To wash us clean and to bring us home. And the good news is that's exactly what he's done. Beginning with the promises of God and the actions of God recorded for us in the Old Testament and ultimately fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God has entered into the darkness of our world to shine his light. And the Father we've turned our back on is intent to not let sin, rebellion, and death be the final word about us. Let's stay and meditate on the reality of this. That God has worked, and who are you before you are anything else? Before you are anything else at all, you are a delighted in child of God. We all have... When we meet somebody and they say, who are you? We all have uh, answers that we might run to. We might tell them, uh, if we're in school, what grade we're in. We might tell them what profession we're in. We might tell them who our parents are. Oh, I'm the son of... We might tell them any number of things. And when we're doing that, we are, in a sense, defining ourselves. We're defining who we are. We're we're trying to give almost a dictionary answer to the question of who are you. But who are you? What pops into your mind when I say that question? Who are you? Before you're anything else, because of what Jesus has done on your behalf, you are a delighted in child of God. 
You are not primarily what has happened to you. You are not primarily what uh, your history is. You are not primarily your sins and your faults. You are not primarily your good deeds. You are not your job. You are not the things you have achieved. You are not the things you have failed at. Before anything else, you are God's child by grace. Now you may have a family history that makes you hear father or daughter and son and wince. I get it. There's a lot of horrible dads in this world. You may have a father who ignored you. You may have a father that abused you. You may have a father that left you. And that's not the kind of father God is. He's not absentee. He doesn't have mixed motives about you. Maybe you came from a broken home and you felt like you were a pawn in this chess game between your mom and your dad. But God doesn't have mixed motives about you. He doesn't use you as a thing. No. His intentions for you are set. His intentions for you are sure. He has sought you out. He is the good and perfect Father. And He is the good and perfect Father who knew everything, absolutely everything about you and wanted you as His child. You. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Lion. It came out, I think, 2016. It's really good. Um, but the movie's about this little boy in India. And he got separated from his family one day, and he was lost. And he, he didn't know his way back home. He got stuck on this train. He had no idea how to get back home. And he eventually wound up in the care of an orphanage. The authorities put out all these uh, flyers and these... Uh, ads in newspapers and guessing where he might be from. They can never find it. He winds up in an orphanage and he's adopted. He's adopted by this Australian couple and raised by them. And they later adopt another little boy from India from an, the orphanage. And in the movie, we meet him as a young adult. And he's struggling with who he is because he's this kid from India who was raised in Australia and all the difficulties culturally that that brings to the table, all the racism and stuff that feeds into what his experience has been. And he's wondering, who, who am I? He's wrestling through this. And one day he goes and he speaks to his mom. His mom's sick. Um, and he's talking to her, and he's struggling with these feelings that he wasn't really wanted. And he says to his adopted mom, I'm sorry you couldn't have your own kids. I'm sorry you couldn't have your own kids. And she says, well, what are you saying? And he says, I mean, we weren't blank pages, were we? Like your own kids would have been. You weren't just adopting us, you were adopting our past as well. And I feel like we're killing you. Because part of her sickness is wrapped up in... Things have not gone well for one of these kids, and she's worried, quite literally sick. I feel like we're killing you. The mom says, well, we could have had children. We chose not to. We chose not to. We wanted you two in our lives. We chose that. This is a powerful illustration for me. When we think of ourselves as adopted, there's a lot of cultural stigma that can come, sometimes come with the idea 
of adoption. You know it. Kids tease each other and they'll tease a kid about being adopted or the not wanted kid, not the not real kid. And the idea is that, you know, you got biological kids here and then adoption, something bad had to happen for that to exist. And we can carry that over, I think, in our ideas of what it means to be adopted children of God. Like we're lesser kids. Like he made a place for us in the house, but it's like Harry Potter's little nook under the stairs. Like we're in the house, but we are not liked. (laughs) Or God almost begrudges us there. But I want you to know, God wants you as his child. He chose that. He does not begrudge you what it cost him to bring you home. Not a bit. He went into his relationship with you with eyes wide open about what it would mean for him to bring you home. And he has no shame for you. He has no guilt for you. He has no condemnation for you. You are his child and he chose you. Maybe you feel like nobody else in the world would pick you. I think we all want, at the same time, want to be known truly and seen truly and loved truly, but we're also terrified of it because we think if we're truly known and seen, there's no way we could be loved. But God knows you fully. He knows you truly, and He loves you fully and truly. He chose you. He chose you. So who are you? You are God's child. Period. That brings me to a second section of this. Who are we? Not just who are you. Who are we together? We are God's children. Our status as God's children is not just an individual thing. All the things I just spoke about are not just true of you individually. It's not just you and Jesus in this relationship. It's true of us together. I keep saying we and us on purpose because adoption As God's children is both an individual reality and a corporate reality. It's adoption into a family. A family where God does not play favorites. A family where God's love is not a limited supply. That he can give this much to this kid and this much to this kid, but eventually the pie is going to run out. No, there's no competition for his affections in his family. And there's no comparisons As if God had to reach further down to find any of us. There's no boasting. Or there is to be no boasting in God's family. Where we say, well, yeah, God had to save me from my sins, but at least my sins weren't those. At least my issues weren't those mistakes. Or at least I came from a good family. God's family is one where you'll never hear him say, I wish you were more like your brother. I wish you were more like your sister. That's part of the point of this passage. Now, we, we were reading and, and we've been looking at in the wider context of what Galatians says that there were Jewish Christians who were telling all these non-Jewish Christians who were brand new, who had no background in the faith. They hadn't been raised on the Old Testament. They had been raised in who knows what. And they hear the gospel and they respond. But there were some Jewish Christians who were saying like, no, that's too easy. You guys got in too easy. (laughs) You need to do more stuff. You need faith in Jesus and what he's done plus some other stuff. 
And those Jewish Christians were saying, well, we're physical descendants of Abraham, the person whom God made the promise in the first place. So we're like, we're like the natural sons. You guys are like the, the kids that we're going to stick under the stairs. We're the, we're the real children of God, and we'll let you guys come along. But if you really want to be fully accepted, you need to become like us in every way. And the big point that the Apostle Paul is making in this passage is a direct counter to this. There are no grounds for boasting or thinking that any children of God are better or more, quote-unquote, natural than others. No, for any of us to be made right with God and brought home to Him, it required a breaking in of His grace, a supernatural action in Jesus. It wasn't like the physical descendants of Abraham were this perfect group that had gone through time and all they needed to do was wait long enough and then they would fully mature and blossom and God would say, look how righteous you've been. It's not what it was at all. No, it required Christ breaking into the darkness of this world to shine the light of God, the light that will not be overcome by the darkness. All of this happened in Christ for all of His people. And so we might not have the same situation as far as we've got, you know, in our church we don't have quote-unquote Jewish Christians who are saying, well, we're more natural. That's not a problem for us. But we may have situations where we think, oh, well, I or my kids or that, uh, this is more often. We look at another person and we think, no, they're actually closer to God. Maybe they were baptized as an infant. And maybe they, uh, they never had a time where they felt like they strayed off the path. And they looked like they had this vital and living relationship and faith from a very young age. You're not a lesser child of God because it seems to have taken you a longer time to come to Jesus. Because the thing that we have in common as God's children is that it required the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to bring us home. That's the thing we all have in common. And that the only quote-unquote natural Son of God was Jesus. And He came to earth and He took to Himself a human nature like ours. And all of us who become adopted children of God only do so through Him. And what is His by right? becomes ours entirely by grace, and that grace is adoption, receiving the status and the right to be children of God. What this means for us in the day-to-day, right now, in our relationships with each other, in our life in this world, it means to leave behind all the ways that we tend to define and give worth and value. That's what Paul is talking about in those verses we read where he said, In Christ, there's no Jew or Gentile, there's no slave nor free, there's no male or female. He's not saying those individual things don't exist. There are still people who have Jewish backgrounds. There are still people with Gentile backgrounds. And they can celebrate their cultural backgrounds. He's not saying, you know, wipe it clean and pretend it doesn't exist. There are still people who are quote-unquote free in a political sense. And in that time, there were slaves. I talked about this last week. Later on, Paul will deal with this in the New Testament. And he tells people who are enslaved, if you can get your freedom, do it. And he tells people who have slaves, treat them like siblings. Which is a whole lot more than him saying, let them free. He's saying, treat them like your equal siblings. Free them and give them what they need to thrive. They are your brother or sister. So he's not saying, 
put blinders on and pretend like the realities of this world don't exist. All those things do exist. But what he's saying is the reality of what God has done in Jesus Christ guts all of those lines that we tend to draw. It guts them of their power. And that for us to live as God's children, as people in His kingdom, it means that we leave those measures behind. We sang about it earlier in Take It Easy. It's one of the lines I love so much in it. It says, lay down the scales where you weigh out your life. Those measures are empty, so leave them behind. That's true for us. It's true for how we see and think about and treat other people as well. Jesus died so that those measures and those scales that we tend to judge ourselves by and other people by might be shattered and torn down in His kingdom. Being in Christ is a radical break in how we primarily define ourselves and other people in this world. And again, it doesn't mean those individual things. I'm still a man. There's still women. There's still people who are Jewish background, Gentile, etc., etc. But it means that what Jesus has done radically shifts the power of those things to be where we build an identity. Those can be ethnic lines, gender lines, status lines, social lines. The Father has not adopted some of His children to live in this house over here. And some of His children to live in this house over here. And He doesn't play favorites. It's easy for us to think, I think, that, yeah, it's all grace. It's all grace. But God doesn't think, man, I love all my children, but I really love the American ones. It's never a thought that God has had. Now, we might love being American. We might be patriotic. That's a good thing. But God does not have these weights in His mind where He thinks, man, I I really love those. Those are, my, those are my favorite. Oh, I love all my children, but I really love the wealthy ones because it proves that they were smart with their money. Oh, I love all my children, but I really love the ones who have all the trophies and the 4.0 GPA and the well-financed 401K. We think those things are important, right? And they're not not important. Yeah, save for retirement. It's a good thing. <laughs> If you're doing something and there's a trophy, yeah, go for it. That's fine. But those are things that do not enter in the heart of God, in the mind of God when He thinks of us. And so they should not and cannot be things that enter our own minds when we think about ourselves or others. Lay down those scales. The, 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 The measures are empty. It's all grace, every bit of it. The salvation of the worst sinner I can think of did not require a bigger sacrifice by God than mine did. There was not a deeper darkness than my own that Jesus had to descend into. Because we are all trapped in how this world works. It's what Paul's talking about in verse 3 when he says the elemental spiritual forces of the world. He's not turning sci-fi there. What he's saying is the way our world works kind of across the board. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, karma, you reap what you sow. All of that just leaves us blind, toothless, and hungry. It is the only, uh, our only hope is the supernatural eruption of grace into our world through Jesus. So we toss aside the things we put our stock in. We toss aside our pride for a better identity for who we are in Jesus. So who are we? 
We are the adopted children of God, not in competition, not in comparison, not in hierarchies. We are united in this basic reality that we are loved. And that brings me to my last section, learning to speak as God's children. If you enroll in a language class today, the very first thing you'll get is a textbook. When I was in seminary, I had to learn Greek, and I'm not good with languages whatsoever, but it was the first class I was enrolled in, and I had this textbook. And I'm learning uh, tenses and cases, and I'm learning not just an alphabet, but I'm learning all the grammar and the syntax of the language. And it's hard. (laughs) And it's almost artificial, because if you think about it, that's not how we actually learn language. Now, there's a place for breaking it down in those ways. But how do kids learn to talk? You don't give them a textbook. There's no little golden book, language textbook you give to a kid. Sandra Boyton has not written a grammar and syntax book. How do children learn their first language? What becomes their heart language? The ones that come out of them without them even thinking about it. Kids learn to speak by being spoken to. Kids learn to speak by hearing sounds and hearing words and repeating them, right? Kids don't learn language so much by learning it in, you know, classroom kind of way that we think about it. And that will eventually come. That's a good thing. But we learn it by the presence of other people with us who in their interactions with us call the words out from within us in a sense. They pull the words out. We learn to speak by being spoken to. When it comes to living as God's children, the same thing is true of us, but even to a greater extent. And that's part of what he's talking about in verse 6. He says we're God's children. He empowers and enables us to open our mouths to respond to Him. God sends to us the Spirit of His Son, His empowering presence, the Holy Spirit. And by His Word and Spirit, God speaks to us. He brings us to life, and we learn to speak by being spoken to. God speaks to us of His love for us and reminds us of it time and time again. And in doing that, He enables us to speak back. And what do we say? Abba, Father. His Spirit enables us to respond. We're spoken to, and the words are pulled out from within us. This is another way that God's not like a lot of the fathers in this world. How many fathers in this world demand that their kids be silent in their presence? How many fathers in this world shut their kids' voices down because they're tired from work or they're annoyed at what the kid has to say or the kid's taking too long to get to his point and the story's going on forever? That's not the kind of father God is. He does not demand silent children. No, He invites us to speak to Him and about Him and not like an abstract thing. We don't talk about God like we talk about calculus or string theory. God is our personal Father, our God. And the greatest gift of salvation that God gives us isn't stuff, it's Himself. That's the point here. God could zap us to life and stand back. He could say, okay, I want that, boop, from a distance. But he doesn't. I compared him a few weeks ago, you may remember, to Bill and Melinda Gates, who've given incredible sums of money to causes. But the thing that all of those gifts have in common is they don't also come with a key to the Gates household. But the good news of the gospel is that not just that God is 
owns the cattle of a thousand hills and he'll pop in and pay for some of our stuff like a philanthropist. No, he gives us key to the household. He brings us into his home and by the Spirit of God we are swept into the eternal life of love that is God. And through God's Spirit, uh, that becomes the environment in which we learn as God's children to speak. And what's our first words? Dada. Abba, Father. Abba was a, a name of intimacy between children and a dad. It's not exactly the equivalent to daddy, because it's more like a name that you would call your father in the context of family your whole life long. So like a papa or something. But in, in the, the, the language that Jesus spoke on, in his time on earth, Aramaic, in that language, that was the term of reference within a family for a father and a son. Abba, Father. And it's significant here, and I think the reason why Paul puts it in Aramaic here, because he has everything else in Greek. We don't see that because we're reading the English translation. But this is one of the rare terms that is untranslated from Aramaic into Greek. I think the reason we have it in the language that Jesus actually spoke is because Paul is making the point that when we are brought into the family of God, we are invited into the intimacy that Jesus had with the Father in his time on earth. This is the same term that Jesus called upon God as in prayer. In the Lord's Prayer, yes, but also in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was crucified. Abba. Abba. What these verses are telling us is that as the adopted children of God in Christ, we are enabled to pray to God just like Jesus did in His time on earth. And we are able to know that we are heard like Jesus was. Because we are praying, in a sense, in the name of Jesus. We are saying the same word because the Spirit that empowered Him in His time on earth is ours. And we are heard like Jesus was. Not only like Jesus, because of Jesus. For that was the mission of the only begotten Son of God, to find free and bring home his siblings. As what Jesus was doing. He was going to find his brothers and sisters to bring them home so that the joy that belongs to him would be ours too. A friend of mine wrote a song a few years ago as I close on what we've heard from Scripture today. I'm not going to quote the entire song. I'm not going to sing it either. Um, but some of it's worth sharing. He said, we forget how he loves us, so we forget we're Abba's child. So when the lies are loud, let the gospel drown them out. Come out, sinner, from your shadows, every corner of your shame. Don't you know you're his? You don't have to hide your face. Isn't that amazing grace? By faith, you're God's child. Tell yourself that story over and over again. It's how it will uh, seep into who you are. Make time, even if it's just in the car on the way to work or school, to pause and meditate on this truth. I don't mean you've got to get up at 5.30 in the morning and have an hour and a half quiet time. That's unrealistic for most of us. I'm not a morning person in the first place. But be purposeful about this. Because we are surrounded by so many lesser stories about who we are. And our hearts tell ourselves lies about who we are all the time. Make time to tell yourself, 
I am God's child. Literally look at yourself in the eyes in the mirror and sell yourself the truth. I'm God's child. I am loved. He delights over me with singing. His love is the truest and most real thing about me. And if you feel like you can't say it with conviction, say it because God says it. If you can't say it to yourself with conviction, say it like He would say it. I read an author that pointed out that you know kids learn to speak, but how do kids refer to themselves when they first learn to speak? They don't say I. They speak in the third person. They don't say, I am going to do this. They say, Tim does this. The reason why is because they've been taught to talk about themselves by hearing other people talk about them. And so if you can't say, I am God's child yourself in the mirror, say, Tim is God's child. Because that's what God says. In the Christian life, exactly how we learn to speak and think of others is repeating God's words after him. So repeat God's words about you. Allow your sisters and brothers in Christ to embody this story for you. And to say this to you when you can't say it to yourself. There's going to be seasons when your faith runs low or it's going to feel like that. When there's not gas in the tank. Um, And you're going to be carried on in those times by the Spirit of God in your brothers and sisters. In Christ, I've told this story before, but after I finished seminary, I hit a wall. I burned out. Um, I was less than a year out of seminary, and I had done all the stuff. I'd gotten the degree, and I uh, <laughs> it, it was a hard time. Um, and I remember being in an Easter service, and I could tell you all the proofs of Jesus rising from the dead. He did. It's true. It changed everything. But in that moment, in an Easter church service, everybody celebrating around me, I was standing there while singing in Christ alone and thinking, I don't, I don't know if I believe this. This feels too good. And it feels delusional right now. And I don't know if I believe this. And in that moment, I looked around the room, and I, did, I didn't make eye contact. They don't know this happened. But I looked around, and I saw my friends. So I was like, okay, there's, there's the Pollards, there's John, there's Katie. And they were singing with a conviction I have felt before. And I thought, I do not have the strength of faith to believe right now. But they do. So I'm going to borrow, I don't know if this is theologically accurate, I'm going to borrow their faith. I'm going to borrow their faith. And I did. And I kept coming back, and I I wish I could tell you like I read a great book and it zapped me and everything was fine, but I didn't. But that pattern of continuing to come back and allow my brothers and sisters to speak to me, allow them to tell me the truth when I couldn't tell the truth to myself, it made all the difference in the world. And so turn to your brothers and sisters in Christ And even though this might feel awkward, tell them you are God's child. You are loved. He delights over you with singing. And his love is the truest and most real thing about you. So friends, this morning, who are you? You are God's child. He moved heaven and earth to find you and rescue you. You are loved and he delights over you with singing. And his love is the truest and most real thing about you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the glories of the gospel. 
Thank you, you do not leave us to our own devices. You do not leave us in darkness, but you make yourself known to us, not just as a thing, but as our Father. That we might know ourselves as your children who are loved in Christ. So I pray, Lord, that you would cause this to sink deeply in our hearts. Help us to internalize it. Help us to speak it to ourselves and to one another often. That we would learn to speak by being spoken to in your word and spirit. Allow us to come back to scripture over and over again. Allow us to believe and know the truth from you. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.